How is everyone? Good, good. Um, we have uh, returned finally to First Timothy. It's been, I don't know, a couple months or so since we've been in First Timothy. Um, but we finally returned, and we're going to, over the next couple weeks, finish out First Timothy. Um, I'm planning on, Lord willing, having a baby, not, my, not me, but actually my wife is, um, in the next week or two, hopefully. Um, and then uh, we'll have Stephen Pappas fill in for me that week. And then after that, we'll go to First John and we'll, we'll be in First John. Um, we just finished a marriage, um, a marriage series last weekend. So uh, one of the things kind of that, that, that came back to me from, from the marriage series, and I, I thought it was a, a, good, a good question. So um, I'm going to talk about that for one second. And then we're going to go into First uh, Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. So you go ahead and and grab <clears throat> that. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of these right here underneath you, and we'll we'll be in First Timothy chapter six. But um, one of the things that that was said to me about the marriage weekend, or I'm sorry, the marriage series that we did was we talked about women and we talked about them being wives, and then we talked about husbands. Um, but one one thing we kind of left out was uh, people who are single, and what if that means you're going to be single for the rest of your life? And the reason why I'm talking about this is I'm going to actually tie this in today. Um, in a little in a little while at the very end. So go ahead and, and open up. Uh, keep your finger in First Timothy six, and you, if you want, you can flip over to me with me to First uh, Corinthians seven. I'm going to touch on uh, a little thing about singleness and what that might mean for the rest of your life. Um, and then after that, we'll go into First Timothy. But um, in First First Corinthians chapter seven, um, Paul is talking about uh, talking about being single. Um, and what he says is, I want you to be free from, I'm in verse 32, verse 32. He said, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, he's, he's just been talking about marriage and what it looks like to be married and whether you should remain um, unmarried or whether you should get married and, and all these kind of things. He's just been unpacking it over and over and over. And uh, the reason why he's telling them, I want you to remain unmarried, basically he says it in, uh, over in verse 8. Um, he says, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So he's telling them, it's better to remain single, like me. Um, and he calls it in verse 7, he calls it a gift. I wish that all were you as myself, but each one has his own gift um, from God. So there's the gift of marriage and there's the gift of, well, singleness. But I don't like to call it singleness because that doesn't define it good enough. Um, when we're talking about the gift of singleness, we're actually talking about the gift of celibacy. Um, we want to make sure we always say that because the gift of singleness just makes it sound like, well, you know, I'll be single the rest of my life, but, you know, I'm still kind of free to uh, do whatever I want. We're not talking about the gift of celibacy, uh, um, singleness. We're talking about the gift of celibacy, meaning that you will be celibate for the rest of your life. And the reason why I say that is because of verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. So we're talking about celibacy. So we don't, we don't want to ever talk about the gift of singleness. We want to be really, really precise in the way we talk about it and call it the gift of celibacy. Now, if it doesn't feel like a gift, then it's not yours. Then you probably should get married. Um, but verse 32 says, I want you to remain free from anxieties. So <clears throat> Paul's saying, if you're married, there's some anxieties that happen in your life that don't happen if you're unmarried. And, and, and actually, he's saying you're more free to do the work of God um, than you are if you're married. And look, look what he says. Um, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. So you've got more time if you're not married to concentrate on just Christ, your relationship with Christ. And let me just say, if you're single right now and plan on getting married, this should be the way your life looks now. Um, if you aren't focusing on Christ, you have more time 
than I do. There's guys in college that um, are not married. You have a lot more time than someone like me does. You should use this as a gift and really concentrate on the things of the Lord. It says, um, verse 33, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Now, let me just take a little step out because I don't believe Paul is using the word worldly like we would think um, maybe First John uses the word worldly. When we think of worldly, we're like, horrible, bad, awful things. And then we think, oh, but the things that please the Lord, that's what we should concentrate on. So the husband's some kind of big pagan because he is trying to be a good husband, taking care of his wife and, and wants to be a good dad to his children. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I'm just He's just talking about things that you have to do in the world to be a husband. Like I have to take care of my children. I need to put them to bed. I need to help my wife and etc. So that, that's more what he's talking about. And he says, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Uh, meaning 100% can't go to ministry. Some of it will go to helping his wife, which arguably is a ministry, no question. Um, but he's just talking about direct, like full-time ministry. You can, you can do more things if this is the case. And the unmarried... Or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in the body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Um, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So for those of you that may, and I don't know if any of you feel this way, but some of you may be called to lifelong celibacy. Um, Don't look at this as some kind of... Horrible thing. God calls it a gift. And not only does he call it a gift, but it means that you are spared, spared from worldly troubles. And when I say worldly, meaning you, you won't have to. I, there's just no way that I can put all my time towards the Lord. I have to take care of my wife and almost four children. I have to. It, that God's called me to that. And so don't look at um, if you're not yet married as some kind of like God hates you. God doesn't ever want you to get married. This is actually a gift. And 1 Corinthians 7 calls it a gift. And you should think of it in, in terms of, well, that means I can concentrate on the things of the Lord more for the rest of my life or at least for this small time until I get married. Um, that's all I wanted to say. We're gonna, we're, I'm eventually going to come back to it um, in, in a little bit. But we want to look at 1, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 6. <clears throat> this will be the second to last sermon in 1 Timothy 6. If you are... Um, if you're interested in hearing some of the other ones, you can go on iTunes and you can check them out. Um, while we're talking about marriage as well, um, I posted on our blog this past week uh, some resources for marriage. And so if you're interested in that, you should go to our blog. And there's some ser- books and sermons. All of you should read. I recommend reading. It's very good for you. If you're just not a reader and you're never going to read, there's also some sermons you can listen to. But I recommend you actually get some of those books and read if you're wanting to do some deeper study on marriage. All right, so we're going to be in First Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to read the text um, that we're going to be in, and then we'll pray. So let's read this together. In First Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Let all who are under a yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, 
evil suspicions and constant friction from among people who are depraved in mind and and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. We all need to memorize verse 6 this week. This great verse. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take... And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and to a snare and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for help this morning. I pray that I would uh, be able to talk about uh, money in a, in, a, in a way that glorifies you. Sometimes it can be a, uh, a delicate subject. And so I pray that as we look at work and as we look at money, that we would, uh, we would be pierced by the gospel. We would have Christ as our, as our example and that we would um, want to see the text as you have it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, you would come in and guide me and direct me, help me have every word that I need to say um, that would glorify you. And I pray for everyone's heart here, Lord, that they would, uh, they would hear this, and that, Holy Spirit, you would convict them where they need to be convicted, or that you would give them encouragement where they need that. God, I pray for uh, anyone who might not know Christ, even if we're talking about money today and work, that the gospel would be heard by them and that you would quicken their hearts for salvation and that they would want to put Christ um, as, their, as their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, whenever I was being raised by my parents, usually on Saturday, <coughs> I, I counted Saturday as a, as a middle school teenager and high school teenager, my day to sleep in, but it never failed that my dad would walk into my room at about 7 a.m. and wake me up uh, and it's a proven fact. Teenagers need more sleep because you're, you're growing and your body like grows while you're sleeping. So I always tried to help him see that I need to sleep to 12. It's just po- it's like I'm not going to grow. I'm going to have I'm going to be like four feet tall. If you don't, and he, he didn't care. He would come in there at 7 a.m. and we would have to start some kind of project around the house, digging holes in the backyard and planting roses and putting up fences, whatever. Um, that was just kind of the way he raised me. Every Saturday, 7 a.m., we're going to go out and dig holes and till stuff. Um, and so it just kind of got ingrained into me from, a, from an early age that I'm, I'm going to work, I'm going to work, I'm going to work. I'm gonna, and so um, that's just the way I've been wired now. And so whenever I approach actual jobs, whenever I have things, I, I'm going to tend to, I may not always work the smartest, but I am going to work hard. I'm going to, I'm going to do more than probably what I should. And it's going to be to sometimes the neglect of my family. Um, that's just the way some of you might be wired the complete other way. Um, but Paul here, um, as he's, as he's unpacking these verses is going to help us try to strike a balance between the two. Now, Paul's writing to Timothy. He's a pastor in the, in the city called Ephesus. He wrote this book somewhere around 63 AD. So roughly 30 years after Christ's death. And Paul's trying to tell Timothy, a pastor, Hey, whenever you're talking to them about work, whenever you're talking to them about how to, how to do these things as their, as their pastor, you want to give them a lot of wisdom. Now, there's really two places that, that the text is showing that these people can go. One is, um, they're going to be lazy. They're not going to work hard at all. They're not going to honor, well, at the time, their, their master, which 
today the principal for us is your boss. That's kind of the one thing is they're not going to honor their Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ in the way they work and they're not going to honor their master and they're just going to be lazy and not work hard. Or the other side um, that I think we can really see from this as we get towards the end is that they're going to work too hard. Uh, they're going to work so hard because they want to make so much money that they're going to be away from home so much. They're never going to be content with the way God is providentially put them in a certain financial place for the rest of their life and they're going to desire to be rich and so they're either going to not work hard at all and be lazy or they're going to work too much and so what i want to do is kind of strike a balance between both of these today and keep us balanced here and um as always i want the gospel to be the driving thing behind there i don't want after after today you've just heard well i need to work hard or i don't need to work hard i need to step it up and i need to give more money to jesus and i just need to buckle down and why i want the gospel to to drive this the whole time that you're going to see the example of christ and seeing that that's and, and that's going to drive the way you, you handle your money so um today we're going to be talking about money now um here in verse one we're going to see that Paul is bringing back this idea of honor when it says, let all who are under a yoke of slaves regard their own masters worthy of all honor. Um, this is kind of this, this little thing he keeps doing. If you notice, which we've said before, in chapter 5, verse 3, um, he says that we're to honor widows. In chapter five seventeen, when he's talking about elders, he says that elders are worthy of double honor. And then here in six one, he says that masters are worthy of all honor. So he's, he's continually telling us about honor. And as he's doing that... Um, what he's wanting us to do is think about the way we uh, approach our jobs. Now, back then, they had an intricate slave system. The Romans had this ma- major, vast slave system, and probably about third of the people uh, at the time were slaves. Um, and this was for different reasons. It wasn't like slavery like we think of here in America um, 200 years ago. Um, generally, if someone went into debt then and they couldn't pay it back... Back then, they actually made sure they paid their debt off. Like today, we just put it on credit card. But um, back then, they had to pay their debt. And if they couldn't pay it, they would enter into some type of slavery, according to this guy. They would work off the debt. And so um, war sometimes would cause it. But there's, there's several reasons why uh, there would be slavesmen. But it's not exactly the way we think today. And so um, slaves were, on the whole, in the Roman system, treated pretty okay. Um, but as people became Christians, um, a whole new way of thinking about how to handle slaves, especially if a master became a Christian, how a master should handle their slaves, this whole new thought started coming in. And so Paul is wanting to address this. Now, when you read it, you can think, well, Paul seems to be condoning slavery. Paul wasn't condoning slavery, especially the way we think of it. Paul was saying, slavery exists. I can't stop that. So as I'm writing, just understand I'm talking about the system since I can't stop it and how Christians should interact in it. Now, we're going to be talking about masters and slaves, but I want to pull this out into 21st century for us because I don't think any of us are masters of anything um, and none of us are slaves. So really what we're talking about is how we work and how we work with our bosses. It says in verse 2, let those who have believing masters, let those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So there's really... Uh, a big title, if we're going to have this big title over these 10 verses, is this. We're going to talk about money, which is how you earn it, which should be up here. Money, which is how you earn it and what you do with it. How, how you earn it and what you do with it. And the first thing that we're going to get here from verse 1, really verse 1 and 2, is that you should give honor and respect to your boss. You should give honor and respect to your boss. You should work hard and you should work hard as unto the Lord. That's the first thing I want you to see is that you should give honor and respect to your boss. 
And you should work hard as unto the Lord. Now, there's a couple verses I want you to hear um, Paul in, in the book of Colossians when he talks about how we're supposed to work. Let me read these to you. This is Colossians 3.17 and Colossians 23 and 24. 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or in deed, so however you live, whenever you're working, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the first one. And the next one is in Colossians, same chapter, verse 23 and 24. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So whenever you're, um, whatever job you have, if you're a, a filer at your office and you think this is awful and I live in a cubicle and it's just boring and I stare at a screen and it just, you know, it, may, it drives me crazy. You're not working for your boss. You are, but more so you're working for the Lord. This is what it says. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we're not supposed to be, um, we're not supposed to speak ill of our, of our bosses. We're supposed to um, treat them with respect. We're supposed to speak well of them or at least not speak ill of them. If you can't say anything nice about them, just don't say anything. Um, you're, you're to be honorable at work. You're not supposed to be dishonest. You don't need to steal. You don't need to be lazy. Um, you need to be willing to insert, to serve. You need to have integrity. And you also need to have some type of industriousness about you, uh, industriousness about you, meaning you need to try to get the job done. Um, some, some examples of what I'm talking about, which would be, would be negatively, is that you show up late. Um, you should never show up late. If you're a Christian especially, you should not show up late to your job. You should, you should stay the whole time. Whenever you're there, you should actually do the job they're asking you to do. You, d you don't need to surf the internet and watch Facebook all day if that's not what they want you to do. You need to, as a Christian, um, you need to work hard. Here's, here's something you shouldn't, you shouldn't do. If, if a guy is asking you to do a certain job and you're not doing it because, and he asks you, why aren't you doing this? Oh, because I need to, I need to share my faith here at work with so-and-so. If he's not asking you to share your faith at work with so-and-so on the clock, you can do it during your lunch break or whatever. But a better witness is when he's asking you to file, when he's asking you to do whatever, you do that, especially if he knows you're a Christian. That's the better witness is that we want to hire guys that aren't Christians would say we want to hire Christians because Christians work hard. They show up on time. They stay to the end. They don't cut out five minutes early just to beat traffic. They stay to the end. They don't steal my stuff. Um, as a Christian, if you're a worker, you are supposed to give honor and respect to your boss. You're supposed to work hard as to the Lord, because that's who you're working for. Um, why are you supposed to do that? Look what it says in 1B. So that the name of God in the teaching may not be reviled. The name of God will be reviled if you're a Christian and you don't work hard, especially when your boss knows that you're a Christian. But even if your boss doesn't know, you know. You should work hard. Now, notice I didn't say that you should work hard so you won't get fired. You probably will get fired if you don't work hard, and you probably deserve to be fired if you don't work hard. But that's not the point. You don't work hard just so you don't get fired. You work hard because Christ has told you you're working for Him and not for your boss. Um, so that's what you should do, is work hard. Um, one other thing I want to talk about here is um, when we're talking about working hard unto the Lord, we're supposed to approach work not in a way, or let, let's say this, we're, we're supposed to approach money-making not in a way we're trying to 
get rich fast. Um, God isn't interested in you having get rich schemes. I, I remember whenever I was growing up, um, I used to go to USC football games every Saturday. My parents had season tickets. And so um, we would go all the time. And my idea, you know, from middle school, basically almost elementary, maybe sixth grade, for me that was elementary, middle school and even into high school, what I would do every time is um, I would go up there and I would just start buying tickets. You know, I need two. I need two. I had tickets. I just wanted to buy them for 5 or $10, sell them for 15 or $20. Every time I was there, every single Saturday, I was out scalping tickets. Now, this isn't, this isn't what you should do. I mean, this is, this is not good practice. But the idea is, hey, before I walk into the game, I'm, I'm okay with making an extra 50 bucks, 75 bucks. One time, this old couple felt bad for me. I'm walking around like a little, you know, I was, I'm not big now. So you can imagine me in eighth, in eighth grade. I was like this size, walking around, two, two tickets. And so um, this, this old couple felt bad for me. Oh, you need two tickets? Yeah, here you go. Take two tickets. Thank you. And I could see him walking away. And then I'm like, two tickets for sale, two tickets. You know, I'd sell them for 20 bucks a piece or something like that. Um, so my idea was I'm going to make as much money as I can before I go into this game. I got a couple hours. That is not honoring to the Lord. Get rich quick schemes are not the way that God wants us to make money. God wants to make, wants to make money by working hard at our job, showing up, and being a good worker. That's what he wants from us. Not trying to um, be the guy that's just trying to get rich by all these different ways. Work hard. Um, so that's the first one. Now, we're kind of transitioning here into an, in another, in another place, but I, I think there's still a line that we can, that we can see through verses 1 through 10, which is we're talking about money. We're talking about the people that don't work hard. Now we're going to talk about people <clears throat> that maybe work too hard to the neglect of their family. But before we do that, um, Paul gives us a little bit of a reminder here in verses 3 through 5 about doctrine and how important doctrine is. And at the very end of verse 5, he's going to tie it into working hard and being content with where we have at the very end of verse 5. So let's look at um, 3 through 5. It says, teach and urge... I know t- this teach and urge these things is really two, but I'm counting it in three. Um, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, this word sound is healthy. So we're talking about the Bible. These are healthy words for us. The doctrine of God is, is healthy things for us to learn. Does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. This is very strong language. People who do not agree with the healthy words or the healthy doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ understand nothing. Those who don't know Christ really don't know anything. Now, surely they understand some things, right? They, they, can, under, they can learn, they can... Understand math and history, etc. But when it comes to talking about the doctrine of Christ, they don't. Now, this is what he says about this guy. Um, He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved. So this guy is an arguer. All he wants to do is argue. All he wants to do is take your your thoughts and and belief systems and destroy them. All he wants to do is argue. He's talking about this person. And then Paul's going to take this idea, this guy that does this, and talk about contentment. He says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. What he means there, and he's saying imagining that godliness is a means of gain. At the time, there were people who would 
try to act godly. And when they act godly, they could actually earn money from trying to act godly. That's what he's trying to say. And so that's going to bring us into verse 6 when he says, Now there's great gain in godliness with contentment. Now, before I go into verse 6, I want to, I want to finish up one idea from 3 through 5, which is this. 3 through 5 has given us an example of a person who's not a Christian who loves to quarrel and argue about things all the time. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians, we can't have discussions about things. But I am saying, if you're a Christian that loves argument, just loves to, to have these, these arguments about things all the time, you could start looking like this guy. And I don't think that as Christians... What I hear in the scriptures here is as Christians, we are not to reflect this kind of personality. Sure, we can have discussions about, about theology with people. But when we do it, we need to do it in a healthy way that, that honors God. Um, our behavior should not match unbelievers in regard to the way we have arguments with people. We're, we're to do it in a sanctified way, not trying to stir up controversy and stir up people. So that's just a little excursus on, on what I think about how we're supposed to act, um, especially in regard to having controversies with people. Now, verse 6 says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, and this, this idea of clothing here um, is really talking about coverings. So it's talking about your clothes, but it's also really capturing where you live as well as house. And it says food and clothing, but it's really almost talking, talking about, co- the, word, the proper word is covering. So it's talking about both, um, food and house. Um, with these, so I'm sorry, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So the second idea here um, and, and is, is this. Be content with your appointed financial position. Be content with your appointed financial positions. That means God and His sovereignty has appointed you to have a certain financial category. That's just the way it is. Some people will be rich, really rich. Some people will not. Um, and I'm not saying don't work hard. And I'm not saying don't accept raises if your boss is like, I want to give you a raise. No, no, God's appointed me to be poor. Let me stay poor. That's not what I'm saying. You should still take your raises. Um, but wherever you are, this is not something that you should think about all the time and be consumed with. You should be content with your appointed financial position, which produces great godliness. And the idea is that you can't earn godliness. You can't earn it. Now, I want to talk about contentment for just a second, um, because Paul here is telling us that we should be content with this appointed um, financial means that we're in. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul also addresses contentment. And there's, there's a verse, Philippians 4.13, that's kind of been switched and, and changed in, in meaning. 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that we've taken that to mean whenever we are at, in high school football and we stink and the other team's awesome, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's going to somehow make us more athletic than we already are and we're going to beat the team. Or if you've always stunk at basketball and you've never been able to dunk, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So now, because I really believe this, he's going to help me dunk. Or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've never studied and I'm not very smart anyway, but I'm going to go ahead and pass all these tests and, and college and things like that. Well, that's not the verse. That's not at all the context of the verse. It doesn't mean just because you slack off or you stink or maybe you're not gifted in a certain place, that if you really believe hard, he's going to somehow strengthen you up and make you be able to accomplish these, these dreams that could ne- not necessarily be who you are. Um, the, the, the context of this is contentment. So 
let's not just look at 13. Let's jump up to 11 and read 11, 12, and 13. And as we read 11 and 12, hopefully 13 will help us understand a little bit more. Verse 11 says, now this is Paul writing from a prison. He's in a prison. And he says, now I am speaking, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So Paul has nothing writing from a prison. I'm content here in prison. Now, this is a prison 2000 years ago. So it's not like he had his own toilet and some running water. He could brush his teeth and write and send letters to people um, and watch the Internet and watch. That's not it. He's in he's down in a deep, stinky dungeon where he probably just has to use the bathroom on the floor. That's where he is. I've learned in any situation to be content. Could you be content there? And then he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. So basically, I know what it means to be really, really poor. And I also know what it means to be really, really rich. He probably had money before he came to Christ. Um, and every, and in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can be content and not having anything. He's going to strengthen me to get through this. It's not just because you want to do something. <laughs> the, the, the context in this is contentment. So we're carrying that into this, these verses as Paul's telling us. Great, now there is great gain and godliness with contentment. Your appointed financial means right now, God wants you to be content in that. He wants you to be content in that. And if you will be content in that, whether you're going to be poor the rest of your life or maybe you will abound, maybe he'll be sovereignly gracious to you in regard to finances and let you abound. But just because he lets you abound doesn't mean that that means more play money for you. That means he's given you more to steward for his glory. But whatever way you are, wherever you are, you are to be pursuing godliness in this. And godliness doesn't come by earning it. Godliness comes by God helping you walk through this being content with where you are so that you can, you can be more Christ-like in wherever you are. So if you have food or if you have clothing, then he's given it to you. The reason why is, he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Meaning, I know you love your we. I know you love your flat screen. But whenever it's all said and done, you're not going to be able to take all your favorite clothes out of your closet and your, and your flat skin and try to march into heaven with, to see Jesus. All that stays here. All of it. You don't get to take any of it with you. Now, this verse right here in verse 7 um, sounds like to me um, that Paul, which I know he had, was kind of remembering Matthew 7. Now, this is conjecture if whether he was actually remembering it, but I'm going to say flip over to Matthew 7, Matthew 6, I'm sorry, because I think there's some things that we can pull out of this in Matthew chapter 6. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21 tells us this. Verse 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you can't take anything with you. And he's appointed you financially to be in this certain place. So with whatever amount of money you have in your life, God wants you to take that, and to lay up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. 
You can't take your clothes. You can't take your flat screen. You can't take your Wii with you to heaven. Therefore, don't put all of your... I'm not saying you can't have clothes. You should. You definitely should. I'm not saying you can't have a TV. Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. Depending on whether you're going to make TV your idol. However, don't make that your idol. Don't make things your idol. Take your money and steward it for the glory of God. Use it to spread the name of Jesus throughout the world. Not to build up more treasures. Not to build up more idols. Not to get more things that you can play with and distract you from walking with Christ. Build up treasures on, in heaven, not on earth. Why? Verse 21. For, there, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This kind of Christian truly believes... And we know that Romans 8.28 says this. This kind of Christian believes Romans 8.28 when it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. They're content and they're very much joyful getting to use the money that God's given them for His glory and not for themselves. Because they say all things work together for good. All things work together for good. All right, so... Next thing is this. We're going to look at at verse 9. For those who aren't content with where they are. Now, the second thing that we saw is that we are to be content, and that produces great godliness. Um, For those that aren't, this is what happens. Verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. All right, let's put up this this third one. Desiring to be rich. Notice how I phrased it now. I'm not saying that being rich, desiring to be rich will tempt you to love money. Desiring to be rich won't make you have money. It will tempt you to love money. And there's danger and being tempted to love money. There's real danger in being tempted. What's the danger? Verse 9 tells us the steps of what happens whenever you love money. Look what it says in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. So if you desire to be rich, you're falling into a temptation to love money. What happens? Into snare into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So now all of a sudden, there's a snare that's going to grab you and it's going to harm you and it's going to give you these desires that's going to eventually plunge you into ruin and destruction. If you make money your idol, you'll eventually be plunged into ruin and destruction. Now this sounds just like the verse we just read. Now look over in Matthew chapter 6 again. Matthew chapter 6, we just read verses 19, 19 through 21. I want to keep reading and help you see the rest of this. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21, and then we're going to go into 21 through 20, 22 through 24. Look what it says here. Um, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then it says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness and the light is in you. <coughs> and, and then the light is in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? And look what he says in 24. No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's talking about God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You can't love God and you can't love money at the same time. 
It's either you're going to love one and despise the other or, or vice versa. Which means this. Here today, what Paul's telling us is that we are to love God, to love people, and to use money for His glory. We're to use stuff and to use money. But what's happening to us, what's been, what's been going on um, for you and for me, or at least in today's society, is that far too often we found ourselves loving stuff and loving money and using God and using people. We're not loving God and people and using our stuff and money for His glory. We're loving stuff, we're loving money, and we're using God and people in order to get the things that we, that we really worship. So here, he wants us to see that desiring this will bring us into many, many temptations to fall into evil. Um, what will this do if, if this happens in our lives? What will this do in, in, in regard to the way we work? If all of a sudden we start loving money, worshiping money more than God, what's going to happen in, in, the, in regard to the way you work? You're going to start overworking. You're going to start working too much because you want to make money. You're going to start neglecting your family. You're going to start spending way too much time at work and way, way too little time at home. You're not going to love your wife. You're not going to love your children the way you should. Um, or if, let's say you're not married. All you're going to do is you, your church will be the building that you work in. You're going to go to worship Monday through Friday. And so bringing it back around to where I first, where I first started when we were talking about people who are celibate. Um, they will not have to have the anxieties of the world, meaning have to watch their children, watch their wives, and things like that. But for those who, who are married and are trying to earn a lot of money, they will neglect the things that God has told them that they shouldn't neglect, namely their family and their children, and they'll spend more time thinking about how to make money, and they'll be tempted to try to make money rather than being a good dad and a good husband. So we see, we see this illustration here we see this this um telling us that we're going to be plunged into ruin it says for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils it's not saying that money is the root of all kinds of evils it's telling us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils and then it tells us this it is through this craving that some has some have wondered this word wondered is where we get our planets this our word planet from um, I can't remember how to pronounce the Greek word, but ba- basically it's where we get our word planet from. Um, and if you think of the sun, the sun's fixed, and our planets just kind of wander around in, in this kind of idea. And so what he's saying is that for those who love money, they're like the planets. They don't, they don't stay centralized on the sun. They don't, they don't stay here. They find themselves away from the source, away from the sun, wandering around. And never ever staying there at the source. That's where we get our idea and our word planet from. Is that they're always moving away from the source, the sun. They don't, they don't stay at Christ. They wander away from him. They wander away from the faith. And they, and they pierce themselves with many pangs. Um, so the question is, well first of all, don't desire to be rich. Because that's going to tempt you into a lot of temptations. But what if you are rich? What if God's appointed you? And let me just stop here. Um. I know you're probably thinking, I'm not rich. I know people who are. Um, you are rich. Every one of you are. Every one of you is. One of those two. Um, every one of you here is rich. 
You don't think you are because you're comparing yourself to everybody else in America. You know, you're in college, right? You can barely eat sometimes, and it's not very good food. And you know guys that can go to Ruth Chris and eat a steak every night, you know, $50 a steak or something like that. Um, And you're thinking, well, I can barely get to the grocery store and buy anything. I'm not rich. But if we look at the rest of the world, as far as income goes, we are all probably in the top 5% of the world, and some of us might be in the top 1% of the world as far as income goes. So all of us are rich. So the answer is, all right, since probably all of us are rich, what do we do? I don't want to be tempted. I don't want to fall into this temptation to be rich um, because the love of money is the root of a root of all kinds of evils, and I certainly don't want to be evil. What do I do? If I am rich, and I'm just going to say more than likely all of you are. Good question. Paul answers it down in verse 17. Flip down to 17, and this is how we'll we'll conclude here. In verse 17 it says, As for the rich in this present age, probably going to apply to every single person in the room in some way. If God has appointed you to have more money than you need to actually live, which probably He has, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. First thing you should do, if you're rich, set your hope on God. Set your hope on God. Don't hope in anything else besides Jesus. You don't hope in your money to be your Savior. Your money is not your Savior. Set your hope on God. After this, it says, "...who richly provides us with everything to enjoy." Here it is again. Here's the next thing. They are, to in, they are to do good, to be rich in good works. So the second thing is that we are to do good things with our money. We are to be rich in good works. Since you have an abundance of more money than you really need, you're to use those things for God's glory. You're to do good with those things. You, maybe, practically, this means that you keep um, gift cards to... McDonald's and Chick-fil-A, $5 gift cards in your pocket or in your truck all the time. And so when you're driving around or you see people who are hungry or or in need, you have things on your person ready to give out. Um, You are to always be looking for opportunities to do good. Don't don't let it kind of just hit you in the back of the head like, oh, yeah, I forgot, I'm supposed to be doing good. John Calvin was commenting on on this section here, and this is what he says. We are always more delayed than we ought to be in giving to, to be in giving to the poor. How about that? I think that's true. We are always more delayed than we ought to be in giving to the poor. Don't be the kind of person that delays. Be what it says here. Be proactive. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. So the first thing is setting our hope on God, not on money. The second thing is because we have money, to do good with our money. And then it says here, to be generous and ready to share. To be generous. You should be generous. Don't just give them your leftovers. Don't just throw a couple bucks at them and make yourself feel better. Be generous. Be generous with your money. Do you know what generous means? It means you're giving more than what people would think. More than maybe what you would think you should give. You should be generous with your money. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That which is truly life. So, what's your standard? Um, What is your standard? 
Now, most of us think that <clears throat> the standard is this. I was told this in college whenever I didn't have any money. Um, the standard, this is how you're supposed to do it. This is what you do. You give 10% to God, you put 10% in savings, and you live on 80%. That's what you're supposed to do. 10% to God, 10% to savings, live on 80%. It's a pretty good rule, honestly. It does work. Um, Christy and I have practiced that when we first got married, um, and, and it works for us. We, we try not to live beyond our means. We, we, by God's grace, don't really have debt, um, and that's, that's what we tried to do. But um, recently, I've been listening to um, and reading about this, and, I, and I've kind of wanted to shift, all, I want all of us to shift the way we think, because we think our standard is, um, I get 80%, it's mine, I'm going to give 10% to savings, and maybe out of that 80% I'll live on, I'll throw a couple extra percentages to people, but 10% I give away. So whether I give it to the church, or whether I send it to Haiti Relief, or whether I just buy food for homeless men or whatever, that comes out of that 10% that God's told me to give, because God tells me in the Old Testament, I'm supposed to give a tenth, tenth away. Um, I want us to kind of shift ourselves here. Instead of saying, how much should we give? It should be 10%. I want to think of it this way. What do you think the answer is? What do you think it is? The answer is always Jesus. It always is. Anytime somebody asks you the question about stuff like this, the answer is always Jesus. What's our standard? Is it 10%? No. Our standard is Jesus. Jesus came and gave himself sacrificially to die for us. So what's our standard? In, 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 in regard to giving, our standard is Jesus. He didn't come and give 10% of his life to die for us on the cross. He gave all of it. He gave his whole life for us to die on the cross. I'm not saying that you need to give all your money away. I'm saying there's a principle. Jesus gave himself sacrificially. So you need to determine for yourself in regard to giving what is sacrificial. For some of you, 10% is sacrificial, and that's good, and you need to do that. But don't just say, oh, it's 10%. Get out my little calculator. Oh, 10% of da-da-da. It's perfect. That's all I'm giving. That's, that is so, so legalistic. That reeks of a heart that just wants to get the job done and not give any more. That reeks of a heart that doesn't want to be generous. Our, our standard is Jesus. So you need to determine what's sacrificial. I don't know what sacrificial is for you. I don't even want to begin to say numbers that might be sacrificial for you. Christy and I have determined what's sacrificial for us. Every year, whenever the new year starts, we say, what's going to be sacrificial for us? And we we pick that percentage. And the next year, we reevaluate what's going to be sacrificial. And by God's grace, he's let us increase it. But you have to decide what's sacrificial. Don't ever think that your standard is 10%. Your standard is Jesus. Your standard is always Jesus. And you need to give what's sacrificial, and you need to give joyfully. You need to give joyfully when it's sacrificial. So, um, when we're talking about money here, it's really easy for us to um, fall into that line of legalism and think, all right, so what he wants me to do is just work hard, uh, be on time, check the list, show up on time, get up on time, stay to the end, don't steal stuff, okay, and give money, and don't work too hard. Got those things done. And you can do every single one of those things and not even love Jesus at all. All right, so don't hear me saying, do these certain things. The idea is this, when we're talking about money, we're talking about work, here's what I want you to do. I want you to focus your mind in pressing in and knowing Jesus. 
That's, that's always the conclusion of every single sermon. The conclusion of every single message you'll hear is always the gospel. It's always the gospel. It's never do these things. It's press in. Know Jesus so deeply, so much, so that He informs you on the way you work. He informs you on the way you do your finances, so that you're doing as a response of worship to Him. You're, you're trying to find out what's the most God, God-honoring, God-glorifying way that I can give my money away to bring Him more glory and make His name better known in my community and this whole world. So th- it's always... Press in to Christ. For those of you that don't know Christ, the answer is become a Christian. Trust in Christ. He sacrificially gave himself up for you. He gave everything so that you can receive all the forgiveness you need. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. You can receive all the forgiveness for all of your sin. Because he gave all of himself. All of his righteousness is given to you. All of your sin is put on him. So trust the gospel. He informs us as we press into him. He informs us of how to spend his money. We don't ever inform Jesus on how we're going to spend his money. He informs us. We're going to go into our time of, of uh, worship. And so as we do this, um, as we go into our time of response, there's a few things that I'd like for you to think about, a few things I'd like for you to consider as we, as we respond through song. Number one, perhaps you have some, some confession. Perhaps you have some confession. Maybe you don't even think about honoring God with your finances. You, you don't give any money to Jesus. And, and Don't hear this as a, uh, as a sermon that says, give your money to remedy. Man, I could care less. I trust God is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to help remedy be a church if he wants it to be a church in, in the city of Rock Hill. Whether you give or not, I trust him. So I'm not saying give money to Remedy. I'm saying give money to Jesus. Maybe it's Remedy. Maybe it's to your neighbor. Maybe whatever it is that's going to spread the name of Jesus. You need to be, to be honoring Christ in regard to that. Maybe you don't give any money away at all. That's just not God glorifying. Not at all. And I think if that's the case, I, I know that if that's the case you have some confession and repentance that you need, to, you need to think about. You need to read verse 6. You're not content. You will not be content. And you need to pursue godliness. And there's some confession and repentance that needs to happen as we go into our time of worship. Maybe you need to stay seated and think and pray. It is a sin if you hold all of your money if you're a Christian. It really is. It's just a sin. Maybe you don't work hard. Maybe you stink. Maybe everybody at your job knows is the guy that shows up late and tries to beg the Christian boss, hey, we're brothers, come on, give me a break, right? Don't fire me. You should be fired. But you need to repent for not working hard. Don't steal from your company. Their stuff or their time. Work hard for your boss. Because you're working for Jesus. Or maybe it's the other side. Maybe you work too much. You neglect your family. Wherever it is, confess and repent. Use this God-ordained time for us to be here and hear this word and, and say, God, these are the places I'm failing. I repent. And as you repent, stand and sing and proclaim to Him 
The one who gave his son, proclaim all of your worship to him because he gave his son that you can be forgiven of all these things. Press into Jesus and live in light of these things. That's what our response is about. That's why we sing all of our worship songs at the end or the majority of our worship songs at the end because it's a response to the gospel that he's forgiven everything. If you don't know Christ, I, I just can't tell you how important it is that you put your faith in Christ. There's no reason. There is no reason to put this off. Today is the day for salvation. Today is the day to put your faith in Christ. Sure, you have questions. I'd be willing to answer every single one of them if I can. Today is the day. We'll have people at the end of our service that you can pray with. Or during the response, during the worship, just come talk to me right here. I'll be sitting, standing right here. Come talk to me. Today is the day to put your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that as we go through books of the Bible, one after another, one after another, one after another, there is, there is nothing in your word that doesn't show us our sin. I thank you, Lord, that um, by the power of your spirit, and we go, as we go through these books, there's not a topic that you don't leave untalked about. And, and money can be so, so controversial. And so I pray that as we hear this talk on, on money and as we read the scriptures about how we're supposed to use our finances for you, we don't hear this as just some kind of money talk that takes away what you've given us and takes away our, our joy and steals everything and just tries to make us give money and so we can't have it. Lord, I pray that that's not what people heard. I pray that they see the sacrifice of Christ and as a Christian say, we're supposed to be sacrificial. No servant is greater, greater than his master. He gave everything. He gave sacrificially, so we should. And I just pray that we would confess and repent where we need to. Be with us now as we respond. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you this morning, that they would respond in faith, that you would quicken their hearts to faith. I pray this in Jesus' name.